Chapter 6, Part 3 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion, edited by Gerald Bernie Smith. Chapter 6, Part 3 The Development and Meaning of the Catholic Church. 9. The Mission of the Papacy. In our own generation, the churches are summoned to a social mission, the transformation of the social order. Something of the early messianic enthusiasm comes back to the Christian soul. It was the illusion of Lamanius that the papacy could act as the instrument of this modern social transformation. It was the despair of any other solution that carried Orestes Brownson into the Catholic Church. The pressure of this contemporary ardor will kindle the student's interest in the story of the medieval papacy. It will give him a point of view by which to appreciate its historic mission. From this great historic experiment also, he may learn something of the peril which political power brought to religion. The Ideal of Papal Policy What the student wishes to comprehend is the historical process by which the amazing claims of the bull Unam Sanctum, issued by Boniface VIII in 1302, came to be possible. According to that bull, the Church possesses both the spiritual and political authority over mankind. Kings and soldiers wield the sword of political authority by the will and sufferance of the Pope. The spiritual power, the papacy, establishes the earthly power and sits in judgment upon the use made of it it is necessary to salvation for every human being to be subject to the roman pontiff when the student begins the story of the development of the roman primacy he finds an explanation in many historic relativities cleverly used by bishops who inherited the roman instinct and tradition for rule at a later time, he finds a mass of fraudulent documents used to support a claim of ecclesiastical jurisdiction for the Roman bishop over the churches of the West. He discovers that the general ignorance of actual history, the absence of any critical sense even among the intelligent, and the blind credulity of the masses furnish conditions for the rise of the absolute papal monarchy he has a partial explanation of that power to which emperors like henry the fourth frederick barbarossa and frederick the second humbled themselves but he also detects that this marvellous papal development had its origin in an ideal conception and that those who fostered it were actuated by the aim of christianizing a social order full of injustice strife and corruption the papal ideal and the kingdom of god this ideal conception had some relation to the primitive christian expectation of the reign of christ on earth but it was formed when the decay of the roman empire compelled reflection upon the course of history alaric's sack of rome in 410 was a shock to christian as well as pagan why was rome that had been strong when pagan 
doomed to perish in Christian times. Wrestling with this problem of history, Augustine wrote his City of God, with the argument that what was happening was the supplanting of a dominion founded on self-love by a dominion founded on love of God, a kingdom of force yielding to the church of Christ as the earthly anticipation of the eternal kingdom of God. With the eruption of wild Teutonic hordes into the empire, and the part played by the church in civilizing and moralizing these barbarians, with the ever-present dualism of barbarians' conquests by power, and the church's assertion of spiritual dominance, Augustine's conception became more and more real as an interpretation of history. If, however, the church was a kingdom, it must be more than a preaching voice. It must be able to enforce obedience to its higher will. Church and State How should this authority come to the spiritual power? The medieval empire began with Charlemagne, who had pondered on Augustine's Civitatis Dei, and conceived his power in theocratic form. His empire was a church state ruled by a priestly emperor. Subjects owed both political and religious duties to his theocratic will. He was head both of state and church. But the conditions of history gave no permanence to this ideal. The imperial successors of Charlemagne did not inherit it, nor were they qualified to give it effect. The church must exercise authority over them in order that the kingdom of God might have earthly expression. In whose hands, then, should the authority lie? The first natural answer would be, in the hands of the bishops. But the bishops themselves were more and more dependent on the world, on the very civitas terrena that needed restraint and guidance. Bishops were appointed by the state. They were a part of the political system. They were members of a military aristocracy involved in the world's quest of riches and power. He who reached the dignity of archbishop was likely to show himself an autocratic prince. And it is significant that just when the royal power was too weak to restrain such ecclesiastical princes, subordinate bishops in Gaul, about 850 A.D., forged a series of documents providing for papal supremacy over the hierarchy and for the right of appeal to the pope in the case of bishops oppressed by their metropolitan, the forged decretals. This spurious canon law was quietly made use of by Pope Nicholas I. He began that series of claims to absolute sovereignty which culminated in the bull of Boniface VIII already mentioned. This spurious canon law, which was accepted in an age without historic sense, was appealed to by those who were associated with the movement for reform championed by the congregation of Cluny. The great career of Hildebrand in the 11th century is the career of such a social reformer, aiming above all to make bishops dependent on a reformed papacy rather than on a secular ruler who seldom was actuated by the principles of Christian ethics. The test question thus became the investiture 
or form of installation of a bishop in his office. The place of the church in a feudal system. To comprehend the historical situation in its moral aspects, the student needs to know the workings of feudalism, the social system of the time, not merely learning its general character and origins, but studying it as it was seen in its actual operation by the pious monks who wrote chronicles. Such a chronicler, Richer, in the 10th century, describes the time when might made right. Quote, to plunder other men's possessions is every man's supreme aim. It is a bad management of one's business not to add to one's own inheritance that of others. Hence, in place of concord, universal discord. Hence, pillage, burnings, usurpations, violence. So also the 11th and 12th centuries are full of complaints of oppression of the weak, the misery of the serfs, the plundering of churches. The world of that time, seen in such contrast to the church, was the expression of greed, cruelty, and lust. It had not yet been interpenetrated by ideals that could make it sovereign over the deeper elements in human nature. The ideals that had sacred restraint on the soul belonged to the church. The motives actuating Gregory the Seventh in his great battle for papal supremacy rise from this social situation. In his letters he laments over the corruption of the world, where princes sacrifice righteousness to worldly advantage, and the corruption of the church, where bishops obtain office by purchase or bargain, and live worldly and immoral lives. We understand, thus, why he fought to prevent patronage of the church from being the spoil and merchandise of men of the world. The social situation explains the rise and acceptance of the ideal of papal theocracy, and gives intense interest to the long battle of pope and emperor. Social peace social order, social justice were at stake, the Christianizing of the social system. A grandiose idealism actuated the best of the popes, and it is intelligible that the great theologians of the scholastic period supported the most exorbitant of papal claims, and that the pope's supremacy over life became grounded in the common mind. Intelligible, too, is the great codification of canon law by which the church originating in the simple brotherhood of lovers of jesus became a jurisprudential institution requiring the service of skilled church lawyers this extensive addition of the papal decretals to the old canons of councils not only emphasized the subordination of the church to the pope and began the systems under which the Pope possessed the right of absolutions and dispensations, but also added to efface the distinction between a church of worship and a system of law. By the fourteenth century, all functions of the church were treated in the spirit of juristic science, even the doctrines in which the Christian faith and worship were expressed. Luther, when he came, emancipated religion as the soul's experience from this false constraint of jurisprudence. 
luther marked his revolt by burning the canon law ten medieval theology relation to the life of the age the expression of the soul's experience in conceptions borrowed from the legal system of the feudal times is illustrated in the case of the famous doctrine which the first scholastic theologian anselm contributed his doctrine of the atonement is an effort to rationalize dogma to show that the church doctrine agrees with reason the dogma is that god became man why a god-man because only such a being could satisfy the suzerain of the universe for the infinite wrong done to his honor the argument is rational only as it uses notions customary in germanic law it seems not the proper form of thought for what jesus proclaimed luke chapter fifteen of the joy in heaven over the sinner that repents the illustration shows us how contingent and relative to medieval time and place were the conceptions of scholastic theology nevertheless this chapter in the history of doctrine is of immense interest and profit to the student of religion with the student of the history of philosophy he shares the edification afforded by this powerful development of intellectual energy in discussing the rational form of the teachings and practices of the church the culmination of this medieval thought is found in aquinas who sought to bring into the unity of one harmonious system all that natural reason knows and all that has been supernaturally revealed to the church the system is of sociological interest since it is the scientific expression of the universal state which the theocratic papacy attempted to make real the disruption of the scholastic movement through the franciscan attack on this dominican rationalism illustrates a conflict of theological method which still divides men for the student of religion there is a special necessity he needs to understand how martin luther was so revolutionary in effect if not in intention he needs to understand how luther regained the primitive christian apprehension of religion as the soul's experience of god as father how emancipating grace and faith from their official expression in medieval forms he emancipated personal lay religion from sacerdotal tyranny the prerogative over the laity which the medieval theory assigned to the priests and to the pope is expressed in the priest's control of sacraments which were the only means of divine action on men the only channels of divine grace into human life it was in these sacraments indispensable for salvation that the jurisdiction of the hierarchic church was brought home to every man in every social grade and made a reality of his personal emotional life the chief dogma of the scholastic period the central interest of its theology was the dogma of the sacraments one must understand the scholastic attempt to rationalize or justify the sacramental systems which had grown up through historical processes in order to see the place of luther in history 
in order to understand his terminology in order to see how and why the christian current of energy finds its farther evolutionary expression in a protestantism that broke away from a roman dominion eleven the decline of the papacy the rise of national loyalties the end of the medieval period is indeed full of signs that the world would break away from the roman dominion and the student's task is not only to learn the story which leads to the crisis and catastrophe of the sixteenth century but to understand how and why life released itself from the control of the institution which it had created reaching its height of domination in the thirteenth century and reducing the imperial authority to a decorative title the papal domination was itself shattered in the following century by collision with the new national organizations in france and england and spain these unlike the imperial system were social unities grounded in common blood and common speech and the loyalties sustained by economic interests traditions and ideals of organized neighborhood life the papacy reduced in political power still profited by the spoils of its victory and by exploiting the wealth of the nations without any longer serving an adequate social purpose became more and more the object of attack the scandal of papal administration led to the reforming councils where the papacy was disciplined by the episcopate or by bishops acting for the expressions of separate national interests this remarkable reaction does not mean that europe was falling away from religion but that religion had already fallen away in some degree from the papacy the development of lay religion this begins to show itself even before innocent the third exhibited the splendor of papal supremacy in the lateran council of twelve fifteen the student finds that the religious consciousness of the people the creative source of all new movements had already turned away from the sacerdotalism which reigned by power to simpler concerted forms of lay religion fed by a knowledge of the christian beginnings when jesus walked in galilee with disciples who had renounced house and home to preach repentance the succession of these earnest simple lay movements of an evangelical type is instructive as showing that the dynamic current of religion had met an obstacle in the hierarchic institution and was finding new outlet and expression in the life of the common people there were being generated anti-papal anti-sacerdotal currents which would contribute popular support to the reformation that came mysticism another reaction also religious is of similar significance to the historian monasticism serving the papal monarchy and sharing in its affluence was losing vitality but in german and the low countries dominican monks and circles allied to them were using the intellectual form of scholastic philosophy for the gratification not of logical interest but of religious emotion the mysticism of eckhart tuller Suso, and of the theologia germanica meant 
whatever be the complication with philosophical theory, an invigoration of the religious consciousness and the concentration of it on the problem of winning a heart of that unselfish love which Jesus preached and Paul sang. Here again is non-sacerdotal lay religiosity achieving salvation through the soul's own surrender of itself to the unpurchased grace of God. The simpler expressions of this northern mysticism helped to clarify Luther's own understanding of religion as a personal experience, no longer mystical in theory, which, as accomplished by the sole mediation of Christ's revelation of divine love to the repentant soul, emancipated man from the Babylonian captivity to sacraments and priests. The Revival of Classic Culture there is finally the emancipation of culture from the medieval scholastic form. This is not a religious movement. It was the discovery in the rich literature and art and philosophy of antiquity of a new content of life, a new spiritual substance, more gratifying than the arid formalism of medieval scholasticism, and stimulating to revolt against the medieval asceticism even involving much skepticism of Christian convictions. The papacy, robbed of power but opulent for the support of scholarship and art, made itself the patron of the new culture, incongruous as this might be, with all that the papacy had established as Christian. The scholars, the poets, the artists of Italy might loyally support and embellish the papacy which gave them station and pension, and yet be skeptical or indifferent to worship and doctrine. But when Englishmen and Germans and Netherlanders appropriated this new culture, they fused it with a spirit of Christian ethics, applied it to the study of the Bible, and, as Bible Christians, began to talk religion in the terms of the Gospels and of Paul's epistles, contributing in their turn to the anti-papal, non-sacerdotal movement of society. The union of this humanism with the devotion of the northern mystics, the extension of this now devoutly religious new culture to popular circles in the north by the brothers of the common life, means again a permeation of German society with a spirit which welcomed and fostered the Lutheran Reformation those who were not of this mystical devoutness, those who were of the type of Erasmus, or at least biblicists freed from the scholastic trammels and in practical ethical protest against the religion of priestly sacraments. These, too, were allies, if only temporary allies, for Luther's protest against the papal system. Through evangelical sects, through national conflicts with Roman exactions, through the emancipation of the individual by mysticism or by humanist culture, or by a blending of both, the northern part of Europe was preparing for that crisis which arrived in 1517. 12. Suggestions to Students Knowing of this long history is knowledge of a supremely interesting drama where the better and the worse wrestle for human lives, 
a pageant of great men in romantic picturesque days a process of evolution where we may have glimpses to confirm our faith in a providence shaping our lives rough-hew them as we will the knowledge may yield the fruit of wisdom which can rightly judge and interpret men's ideals and methods and the institutions which their strivings have built such wisdom is wealth for those who in the ministry of religion persuade men to live by the vision of the kingdom of god the first duty is to know the story to acquire and retain the facts which enter into so complex a story a proper method is required at the outset we should obtain a rapid outline survey of the whole and then study the subject in more intensive detail it is also advisable to study the table of contents of the larger methodic treatises in order to acquire at the beginning a clear conception of the proper order and distribution of topics the only profitable the only scientific knowledge is knowledge of facts in their systematic relations and the effort so to construct as we learn and after we have learned helps to sustain our own mental activity and rescues us from the danger of being mere passive readers we need not fear that the construction borrowed from treatises may be false since the whole period has been thoroughly worked by an army of scientific investigators and has been so long discussed that the main structure of this knowledge is well established in order to enjoy the fullest independent activity of mind the student should conceive himself as making his own textbook if following a descriptive course in a university or a theological school he should keep ample margins or a blank page in his notebook for the insertion of material borrowed from collateral reading if pursuing the study by himself he may profitably construct his own condensed outline by the aid of more than one treatise and a sufficient amount of source material and he should select a number of topics for essays which may embody a fuller knowledge of his own interpretation of the significance and interest of the facts end of chapter six part three